So Judaism is, um, is, a, is a little more complex than what maybe you think um, in the sense of um, it's not a monolithic sort of a faith where everybody that's a Jew is the same kind of a Jew these days. Um, there are different branches of Judaism, different kinds of Judaism, and each kind has a different sort of uh, set of beliefs. Now that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Just imagine if you were a Jewish person and you were in a Wednesday night class on evangelical Christianity and you tried to define what that was, um, you'd have to say, well, there are some similarities among evangelical Christians, but there's these kind and there's these kind and there's these kind. And what would primarily separate the difference between the different kinds of Christianity in that sort of a definition? What's the difference? What differentiates a, a, an evangelical Southern Baptist from an evangelical Reformed Presbyterian or an evangelical Lutheran? What are what? Why, what, how are we different? Okay, how we interpret the Bible. Largely, largely, it has to do with doctrinal differences. Okay, now there are some practice differences as well. Um, but even the practices typically flow out of doctrine. For instance, just in mentioning Baptists and, and Presbyterians, you would think, I think instantly of baptism. Uh, baptism by immersion, uh, believer's baptism, as opposed to infant baptism. But that's a difference in practice that results from a very different perspective on major doctrine. Um, so when you're talking in terms of Christianity, the thing that typically separates groups is doctrinal differences. And doctrinal beliefs are very, beliefs are very central. Um, and doctrine is very central in Christianity. When you're coming at, um, at Judaism, it's not exactly that way. Uh, doctrine is not the primary issue. Practice is the issue. Um, typically, for, for Jewish folks, the question isn't what do you believe, but what do you practice? Well, not what is your set of doctrines, but how do you live? Um, the, the doctrinal issues are kind of backseat issues. And what separates, say, Reform uh, Jewish people from Orthodox Jewish people from conservative Jewish people is not largely doctrinal issues, although there are some doctrinal differences, but primarily it's a matter of what they practice and how they practice and what that means to them um, as opposed to doctrine. So we have to kind of get this category out of our head that, um, th that applies to, what we, to, to our faith, to Christianity, the idea that doctrine separates. That's true in Christianity, but in other faiths that's far less important than it is in ours. And uh, we'll see that as we hit different... Uh, religious groups. Um, for instance, some questions that might be commonly asked by an evangelical Christian to uh, somebody who is Jewish would be something like this. Since you don't offer sacrifices at the temple anymore, how do you think you'll get saved and go to heaven? Anybody ever thought that question? Um, I've actually heard Christians ask that question to Jewish people. And, and it seems logical from a Christian standpoint. Why? Why does it seem like a logical question? Okay, because we think in terms of our understanding of the Old Testament, temple sacrifices uh, being something that was a covering for sin in some regard. We would think at least since Jews don't recognize the Messiah, they would recognize that still as pointing to a Messiah who ultimately is going to cover their sins. But in the meantime, this becomes the symbol of that, and their faith is in a future thing. Okay, so that makes sense in that regard, right? But it also makes sense in the regard of, as far as Christianity goes, um, and as far as doctrine goes, what's the most important of the doctrines that we deal with? 
I want to say the most important. What is one of the most important? Let's just say it that way. Okay, atonement. And dealing with the issue of being saved, right? How does one get saved? How is a person saved from their sin in order that they might be what? They might be forgiven and be able to spend eternity with God when this life is over. So Christianity revolves around a way of salvation. So even in asking the question of a Jew, well, how, do you, how are you going to get saved and get to heaven if you don't have the temple sacrifices? It, it, it's asking a question from our worldview, not realizing that in Jewish faith, that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue isn't how am I going to be saved and go to heaven when I die. That's not even a primary issue for the most part in the Jewish faith. We, we assume that because it's primary in Christianity. What's that? We'll talk some about that, about the, the, these various holidays and what they symbolize. Um, but, but the point I was trying to make is that issue is not central to Judaism like it is to Christianity um, and so forth. So, um, and, and it also assumes that the purpose of religion is to provide a means to get to heaven, right? It does assume that because in some ways for us that is true. Um, but in some other faiths, we'll see that their issue isn't primarily how do I get to heaven. It, it, there are other things that are more important to them uh, than that question or that issue. Um, and that also asking the question, you know, if you don't have the sacrifices, then how are you going to get to heaven kind of a thing, um, kind of has this, um, this sort of a nostalgic, don't you wish you still had the sacrifices kind of thing going on. Um, and what you would, and, and that it's typical of how Christians would think, but what you don't really know is that probably most modern Jewish people um, have no more ambition for a, a temple sacrifice system anymore than you would have for that. Um, now you have some many Orthodox Jews who have the expectation that Messiah is still going to come and he's going to reestablish the temple and the sacrificial system. Um, but, but that's certainly not pervasive to every group of Jews. Um, many, if not most, uh, would, would, would say to you, I don't, don't have any ambition for another temple and to be killing animals on an altar somewhere. Um, so we, we see just from that one question, looking at it from those angles, that, that, that um, the way we understand our faith um, shapes how we assume other people's faith is shaped, and that's a wrong assumption. That's what I'm trying to point out to you. People don't come at it the same way that we do, and we need to recognize that from the beginning. Um, so how, how many Jewish people are there? How many Jews are there in the world? Let's just start there. Um, there are approximately 14 million, according to adherence.com, uh, Jews in the world, about 14 million. Um, and in the United States, you've got about 4 million, I believe, um, broken up into three main branches. And there are various other smaller groups of Jewish people. Um, but the three largest ones are the Orthodox Jews, the Conservative group, and the Reform group. Um, and you can see comparatively, you know, 1 million, 2 million, 1.3 million uh, in the United States. And these groups are each one uh, different from the other. Um, so trying to define what exactly is Judaism is a, a rather challenging thing. We will, we'll, we'll, we'll define it historically and we'll define it by its practices and so forth as well. Uh, but a good definition uh, given by uh, uh, Cordwin, uh, one of the texts that we're using in preparation for this, um, he defines it this way. He says, Judaism is a religion based on relationships. 
a religion based on relationships. God's relationships with the human person, a person's relationship with God, people's individual relationships with each other, and the chosen people's relationship with other nations. All these relationships are based on rules and traditions that are said to have originated with God. And that's a good summary. It is very much a relational faith and a relational religion. Um, we're going to come. We're going to talk about doctrine, but I, I can't emphasize enough how doctrine is not the primary issue for, for Jewish people. Relationship defines relationship and practice. How do we how do we practice um, our faith within these relationships between us and God, between us and each other, between us as a nation and other nations, and so forth? Um, it kind of lays the foundation for that. Um, and so you could say that Judaism is not so much defined by a real clear set of doctrines uh, as much as it is a prescription for living, a way of living, a way of operating in the world. Uh, what do you practice is more the question than what do you believe. Um, does that make sense? Are you catching that nuance, that difference? Okay. So let's talk just a little bit about um, the history. That will probably consume the better part of our time today. I've given you a timeline I've given you a timeline. Um, well, let me do this. Um, on the front on the front page uh, that I gave you, not your notes page, but uh, the next page, um, there's a little chart that looks like this. And it does have a list of some basic general beliefs, some key beliefs of various of the, of the Jewish uh, groups. Uh, and I say that these are basic because there are groups who would disagree with each of these, um, or at least some of these. But in general, it's a good it's a good summary form that would be largely and broadly accepted by most uh, Jewish groups today. Um, and this is a 13 principle set up uh, group of, of doctrines laid out by a man by the name of Moses um, Maimonides in the um, late 1100s, 12th century. Um, and just some basic beliefs. God exists. God is one and there's nothing like him. God is spiritual in nature. He doesn't have um, a physical form. He's an everlasting God without beginning or end. Uh, he alone is the appropriate object of worship and prayer. These are so far describe in general what term that we looked at last week. Not polytheism, but monotheism. Okay, There's one God. He alone is all-powerful. He alone is the object of worship. Uh, Moses was the greatest of God's prophets. God gave Moses both written and oral Torah. Uh, there is and will be no other Torah other than the one revealed to Moses. God is aware of every thought and action of human beings. The righteous will receive a reward from God. He'll punish the wicked. Uh, the promised Messiah will come at the proper time. As I mentioned a minute ago, uh, some look for this and some do not. All human beings who've ever lived will be raised from the dead um, in general is an accepted view. Um, so uh, I just wanted to point those out to you. It's a good summary, but we'll, we'll note some differences along the way. Um, on the back of that page, you, you get your, your timeline begins. And obviously we're dealing with a lot of years, so it, the timeline covers uh, three pages. So um, you see on that first chart, it begins at the top with um, the journey of Abraham around 2100 B.C. You guys see that? Are you with me? Are you tracking? Okay. goes down to the bottom um, uh, all the way up to uh, 1 B.C., 1 A.D. Your next page picks up there at the top. So if you put them kind of side by side, you'd see that. Uh, it would look kind of like this. Does that make sense? 
And then the last section is on the back of that page. So I'm going to kind of talk you through this, and you can follow along on your um, timeline there um, uh, as, we, as we talk about the history. The history. So, I mean, Judaism deals with the faith that is largely described to us in what book? The Bible. Which part? The Old Testament, right? Okay, so if we were going to trace Judaism, we have to trace it all the way back to the beginning. So what is the beginning of the Old Testament? Where does it begin? Okay, God creating the world. Um, he creates the first two human beings whose names were Adam and Eve. Um, that's true. Um, Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve, they have children. We know what happens to Adam and Eve in, in the garden, right? You remember Genesis? Early books? Early, yeah? What happens? You're going to have to talk tonight because I'm not going to let you just sit there and let me trek through history, okay? Um, they had sinned, uh, fell, disobeyed the Lord, dealt with the judgment that came to them from that. They had children, two boys to begin with, Cain and Abel. What went on there? Cain killed Abel or Abel? I think Abel killed Cain. Isn't that correct? Or did Cain kill Abel? Who are we raising? Are you raising Cain or are you raising Abel? I don't know which one you're doing. <laughs> you are correct. Cain killed Abel. So uh, we, we kills Abel. Over What's the issue? Okay, there's this jealousy as a result of a sacrifice over which one God was pleased with, the other God was not, and there was jealousy that ensued. Cain kills his brother in his rage. And what is the result that happens to Cain? What's that? Okay, he's run. Okay, he's marked. He's run off. He's not allowed to be killed. Um, another child is born to Adam and Eve. Do you remember his name? Yes. Who said it? Seth. Yeah, Seth. Uh, and so you have Cain and Seth that kind of become the the main ancestors for the the line after that. Um, Cain and Seth. Um, so time moves on. We trek our way through the through the uh, Old Testament a little bit. Um, and, and then uh, the, the mankind grows and, and begins to populate the earth, and some things begin to happen. What happens? What's that? Violence, sin erupts and, and manifests itself in many ways in humanity. Um, we, we become so bad that God decides He must act. What does He do? Okay, so the, we come to a major event: the flood. Um, God preserves a remnant. Who? Noah and his family. Uh, with, without any rock giants like in the recent movie, as far as I can tell. Um, so uh, Noah and his family is preserved through the flood. Uh, humanity reestablishes after that. God gives some more specific moral obligations uh, after that. Um, but what happens? Do things get better? Okay, this sin cycle continues until mankind and his arrogance and his pride and his sin decides he's going to do what? He's going to build a tower to try and reach up to heaven. Um, God responds to that much like he responded to the flood, but in a different sort of a way. How does he respond? Speaking in tongues. Um, he confuses their languages. Okay, He definitely confuses their languages. And what is the net result of that? They scattered, exactly right. They scattered uh, all over the world. Um, 
And so time marches on. Those are main events early on in the Old Testament. Time marches on. By the time we get to about 2100 uh, on your time chart there, uh, we're introduced to uh, a, a fellow. Um, what's his name? I got a lot of names there. Um, Abram is the exact one I was I was sort of looking for there. Um, you've got Abram that, that comes onto the scene. Now, what's going on by the time you get to 2100 with the religions in that part of the world? Um, you've got there in what's known as the Fertile Crescent area. Um, you've got some various groups that have various religions, but almost all of the religions are they monotheistic? Do you think, or are they something else? They're largely polytheistic religions in the area of Canaan, Canaanite religions, okay? They're polytheistic, and each group has their own pantheon. Who remembers what a pantheon is? The collection of gods that they regard and worship is the the pantheon. So, yeah, so this is all going on. Um, But even in the midst of all of this polytheism, there is still a remembrance of, in general, an original God or the original God. And we see glimpses of this coming out of even the Canaanite people. And we notice this even in some stories in the Old Testament. Do you remember uh, we're introduced to a guy with a funny name who is a priest king of Salem? Dear Melchizedek is his name. Do you have any kids in the near future? I would recommend Melchizedek. I think it's a good name. Um, nobody has that one going on these days. But this king of Salem who comes out of a Canaanite faith, he is, we find that he's a man who, who worships not a poly, not a pantheon of gods, but he, he worships one god. He call, he's called El Elyon, the god most high. He's, he's, he, he has a, a monotheistic focus, and, and uh, it is uh, understood that he was one who worshipped the true god. Similarly, coming out of another Canaanite area um, called Samaria from the city of Ur. You are? How would you think? If you're going to name the city, what are we going to name this place? Let's just name it Ur. Uh, Ur, I don't know. That's a great name. Let's go for it. Um, and, but there's a man. Isn't it? We're first introduced to him, and his name is not Abraham. His name is, his name is Abram. He um, has a, a wife, Sarai, who later... It's changed, their names are changed by God to, from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. Um, but this man comes out of a culture um, that is polytheistic and out of a family that's polytheistic that worships really um, this, this uh, sort of a Canaanite um, uh, uh, fertility sort of a God and uh, a moon God as well. Uh, but he himself worships one God. He worships the one true God. And he has a relationship to some degree with him. And we find that this man and his wife, they, um, they uproot themselves and they migrate over into Canaan. God gives them the new name, worshiping God alone. And uh, he has kids, most notably. Okay, most notably Isaac, as far as that line goes. Ishmael is also a child first. Um, we'll talk about him when we get to Islam. But um, Isaac, and then Isaac has a, a, a significant child. Jacob, who has 12 significant children. Who, yeah, name them all right now. Come on. Come on, all 12 tribes. I know you know them off the top of your head. Okay. You got a few of them. Yeah, good job. So they have uh, they have twelve kids and and this this clan begins to begins to grow. Um, something significant happens though. Uh, a famine in the land causes this crowd to end up migrating out of Canaan to where? To Egypt, right? 
to Egypt. Do you remember what was going on in the biblical story surrounding that? Joseph and his brothers and all that, we get this migration over to Egypt. And so that happens. Uh, they move to Egypt because of a famine. And um, how long do they spend in Egypt? 400 years. You guys got a lot of facts here. That's right. 400 years they spend in Egypt. And um, they get to Egypt. They're there for 400 years. How do they live in Egypt for the most part? I mean, not initially. Initially, it's pretty good. But pretty quickly, yeah, they become slave labor force for quite some time. And what eventually happens to their, to their faith and their worship during that time in Egypt as slaves? Do they maintain their monotheism? Largely they do not. They largely do not. Um, they, they, they begin to adopt the pagan religious practices all around them. We see this in Joshua, the book of Joshua, uh, around chapter 24. Uh, but then another guy comes onto the scene. God raises up another person, a man by the name of whom? Moses, and what does he call Moses to do? To go and deliver his people from Egypt. So Moses goes, he, you know the whole story of, of how he goes to Pharaoh, and he leads the people out in the exodus, out of Egypt. He reestablishes them in monotheistic religion, the worship of one true God. Um, re reestablishes that as the foundation of this people who are becoming the Jews. Uh, because they've wandered, and they wander other times in their history as well. Um, in the mix of this exodus, some very key and significant things happen that are still important in Judaism. What are some of the things that happen that are really important? Okay, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, absolutely is very, very important. Giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Okay, the establishment of... of Tabernacle, the, the sanctuaries, okay? Crossing of the... Sorry, go ahead. Some of that begins to get established as well, absolutely. Yep. Uh, but the, initially, I mean, what the biggest... Okay, I'll give you a hint. The, one of the biggest celebrations for Jews today is still Passover. Okay, so what does that relate to during this exodus? Okay, just before crossing the Red Sea, the passing over the death angel... The ten plagues, you remember that in Egypt, the last one being the death of the firstborn. So all this takes place, and some of these events are very key to building the foundation for Judaism. They're still celebrated, still highly revered events. And Moses being the leader at this time um, is just monumental in the faith. So, um, uh, and so the key here is those issues, but the giving of the law is so important um, because the, the giving of the law served really as the foundation of, of God's relationship with his people and their relationship with each other. It involved a, uh, a very complex legal code for societal regulations, both civil and what? Dietary, as well as criminal matters. All of that is laid out as part of God's law. Um, the establishment of the tabernacle as a place of worship, um, the Ark of the Covenant, what was that? It was in the Holy of Holies, held there. Okay, it held the stones of the Ten Commandments that were written by God, sure. And Okay, the mercy seat was on top. And all of this becomes part of, of a central feature of tabernacle worship uh, as things move along here. The animal sacrifices and all that begin there. Uh, a very specific code of ritual purity, you know, clean and unclean, and all of that begins to develop as part of the law code uh, during this season. Uh, and, and so, but, but even as Moses is receiving the law from God, what's going on down at the bottom of Mount Sinai? 
Okay, so you've got his brother Aaron, who's leading in his stead. And what, are, what is Aaron and the people doing down there? Okay, you've got this golden calf and this ecstatic worship of this golden calf. And so you have even here this picture of attention that's going to be attention in Judaism for like 900 years. It's attention between monotheism and reverting back to polytheism. And so there's always these factions that are pulling back and forth in Judaism during this period. Um, and it's not going to be until later that that, that that pull ends and monotheism becomes established firmly as, as the Jewish faith no longer challenged so much. Okay, so um, so that, that season happens. We move to another season. The, um, Josh, do I have a slide with some of these things in sequence just so I don't forget them? Um, we've got the, after that, you've got the kind of the conquest and you've got judges. So after Moses dies, who takes over? Joshua takes over, and what do the people do? They, they go into this promised land, Canaan. They go into the promised land, and, and they, they take the land. Uh, the land is divvied up among what? Twelve tribes, and they are established in that location. And they live for about 300 years there with very little sort of centralized political or religious control. But what happens during this period of Judges? Well, before they want king, there's this cycle begins to play out. There's still this pull of sin is pulling at them. And so this, the nation goes through this, these cycles of, of, um, of turning, turning away from the Lord and, and um, uh, sort of digressing back into all sorts of sinful practices until God is provoked enough that he does what? Yeah, he judges them or he brings judgment upon them, typically through what? Not through plague so much. Other nations that come in and invade them and kill them and take them into captivity for periods and so on and so forth. Make them miserable until they ultimately do what? They cry out to God in repentance and for his help. God does what? He raises up a deliverer to bring them out and to lead them back to prosperity again. And they live in prosperity for a while until what happens? This cycle, and all through this season of the judges, this cycle continues to roll, right? And it's in that that we have Deborah and Barak and Samson and all those um, judges that God raises up during that season. So you kind of move through that until you kind of get to the last of the judges. And who was the last of the judges? A man by the name of Samuel, who was also a prophet. And during that time, the people are crying out. They don't want this scenario anymore. What do they want? I want a king just like every other nation. And God warns them, you don't want a king. I'm your king. That's all you need. Um, this is not good for you. And they insist. And so God says, if that's what you want, that's what you'll have. He gives them a king. Who was the first king? His Saul. And that we enter the season of the United Kingdom. Israel is, becomes one nation. The nation, um, one nation under one king, Saul, who's then replaced uh, by the second king, king by the name of David, very central still to um, the Jewish faith is David. Um, so what are some of the things that David does that are central to Jewish religious faith? Okay, he begins to make the preparations for the temple. He um, comes up, has the plans. He amasses all the building materials. He, t- he takes this, uh, a particular city that's still very important to Jews. Jerusalem. Yeah, uh, Jerusalem is taken under David's leadership. 
And he brings the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem and begins all the preparations for the temple. He doesn't actually get to build the temple, uh, but who does? Solomon, his son, the next king in the United um, Kingdom. Solomon builds the temple. Uh, God blesses the temple. And all of religious worship now centers at the temple. And it becomes illegal for Jews to offer sacrifices anywhere other than that temple uh, once it's established. And uh, really a remarkable uh, place that temple is. Uh, We'll talk about it some more later on. Um, But after Solomon dies, what happens to this United Kingdom? It divides. He has kids that don't get along and they're vying for for leadership. And the the nation splits um, into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. (laughs) Northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom becomes the nation of Judah. Um, Two different sons of Solomon. You have Rehoboam up in the north. And um, then you've got Jeroboam down in the south. Um, Now... Uh, now, the northern kingdom has a very distinct disadvantage. What is the distinct disadvantage? What is not in their territory? Jerusalem, which means there's no temple for them to go and, and worship. So, what do they do? Well, that's right. King Jeroboam um, creates two sanctuaries for golden calves, and he designates a whole new priesthood. And before long, that whole nation or that whole kingdom... Uh, is is all out into paganism pretty quickly. Um, in Judah, things are a little bit better for a while, um, but things digress much more much more rapidly in the northern kingdom in Israel. Um, and God, during this time, God's sending what? What kind of people? Prophets. So people like Elijah and Elisha, and all the minor prophets that we studied not too long ago on Sunday mornings to these two nations to plead with them to turn back. They do not. Eventually, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken by which neighbor? The Assyrians. 722. 722. Are you tracking on your chart there? You see, that says 721 on this chart, but it should be 722. Um, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom. Judah stays for a while and continues to, to trek on a little while longer until you get to 586. Um, which is when the Babylonians take uh, Judah. Take Judah. And, and what happens when they're taken? The Babylonians take Judah, and when the Assyrians take Israel? What do they do with the people? Well, they exile them. They do, they do take them on as, as their people, but they don't let them stay in the land. That's the issue. They, they disperse them all over the place. The Assyrians disperse them out through the Assyrian kingdom. The Babylonians take them off so that they can't continue to reestablish in that place. And, and they're dispersed. It's called the dispersion or the diaspora. Um, they're, they're gone into exile. Um, and, and this is huge. Exile is huge. This, this season is huge. Why is this huge? Yeah, because their national identity, their religious identity, their worship, all of that is just undone, and they're scattered all over the place. Um, and so you see during the exile this longing for a reestablishment, this longing for the temple once again, and this remembrance of what it was like to march up to the temple and to worship and all of the things that were a part of Jewish faith during those seasons. So they're, they're exiled. Eventually, um, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians get out of the way. Who comes next? Before the Greeks. 
Persians. The Persians come onto the scene, and the Persians are uh, a little more a little more apt to be generous towards uh, these people. And a Persian king by the name of Cyrus allows some of them to do what? To go back to Israel, to go back to uh, Jerusalem, to go begin to reestablish the nation, and to rebuild what? To rebuild the temple. Um, to reestablish the nation, the first thing besides walls, so people can't kill you, um, the first thing after that is to rebuild what? Start the temple, that place of worship, and to get it back into, into place. Um, and, you know, really it's during the exile that all of the polytheism and the paganism, for the most part, gets purged from this nation. And really, in the, once they return from exile, they're, they're established as a monotheistic people, and that tension is no longer there. That egg, the exile serves that purpose, to purge that from this nation. Um, and it's no longer a risk. Uh, moving forward in history a bit, we get to uh, someone by the name of Alexander the Great. You heard of him? He was what kind of a guy? He was a Greek guy. Not a great guy, he was a Greek guy. Um, he was a Greek guy. And uh, he comes through, and then his sons, uh, uh, excuse me, not his sons, but after Alexander is killed, what happens? Right, his successors, they're known as the Seleucids. Seleucids, are you familiar with that? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Um, becomes the next group that kind of takes over after Alexander. And they come up with this great, great idea. Have you ever heard this term? Maybe you heard this in a history class somewhere in school. Hellenization. What was Hellenization? Something the Greeks did when they conquered lands. Yeah, they wanted to... They wanted to uh, sort of imbibe the culture with, with Greek culture and force the people to become Greek and not allow them to remain in their own subculture underneath that within uh, the Greek kingdom. So um, the Seleucids were big on this Hellenization, and uh, so they tried to force uh, the Jewish people to become Greek, so to speak. And um, they didn't always do that in very kind ways. There was one leader by the name of Antiochus IV, who was a pretty proud guy, who was so intent on this Hellenization that he went into the temple, and you know what he did? Slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple uh, in honor of Zeus on the Jewish temple. How about the ultimate kind of desecration that you could do to that building and to that worship? Uh, he does. And, you know, up to that point, the Jews had been pretty cooperative, but that was a turning point. Uh, when that happened, and, and a revolt begins to take place. There's a high priest at the time uh, when this happens. His name is Hyrcanus, and he has sons. The eldest son is a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee. Excuse me, Judas Maccabeus. Um, maybe you've seen the apocryphal book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Maccabees. Um, purports to talk about the history of this season. But this high priest and his sons... Uh, begin to lead a revolt, and Judas Maccabeus is kind of the main character, uh, main leader in this, and they successfully fight back against Antiochus IV, and uh, for about a hundred years, they have peace in their own rule. They throw them off for this season, um, and, and during that power, the kind of the priestly families ruled. Uh, but it's, it's, it's short-lived because there's another group of people after the Greeks that's coming through that's going to take us into the New Testament era. What's the next crowd? 
Yeah, the Romans. The Romans are going to come. Um, the Hasmonean kingdom, that is the, uh, the kingdom. That's that period um, under the, Maccabee, the rule of the Maccabee family, Maccabeus family. Uh, has the, the Hasmoneans, that's where you see that. Um, and then the, the, the Romans become the next world power on the scene. Um, and they come to the Middle East and they, they put particular rulers over the Jewish people. Um, one in particular that's important to the New Testament is a guy by the name of well, up the up the ladder from him, Herod the Great. Okay, who was not a Jewish man; he was an Idumean. Do you know what Idumeans were? Okay, Idumeans. He was an Edomite, which were the, the descendants of Esau. Esau. Okay. So, um, so anyway, uh, the, 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 they come onto the scene, and by the time we get to the New Testament, that's what's happening. And the Jewish people are there; they're operating. They're back in Jerusalem. They've got their religious worship system going on. Herod the Great rebuilds something very important. What? The temple. He rebuilds the temple in glorious, glorious fashion. Um, so you remember, you know, the New Testament, we see stories of Jesus and the disciples walking by Jerusalem. They're marveling at the beauty of this building and how gorgeous it is and all the gold that shimmers. And Jesus looks at it and says, what? Three days, you know, you know destroy the temple. We're going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, he's not talking specifically about that temple. He's talking about what? His body. Uh, but that's where we find ourselves in the New Testament. And by the time we get to the New Testament, that's what's happening. The Romans are, are there. We've got the, the worship reestablished. But what is the, the, what's going on with Judaism at the time? We're going to wrap up with this right here in the timeline. Are they faithful to the one true God at this point? Yes, no, maybe. Okay, so it had become a very, very tied up in, in laws and regulations and in many ways superficiality and political power and all these other things that are going on. Um, and, uh, and that all it takes us all right up to the time of Jesus. Um, some propagation takes place and ultimately the Romans, uh, the, the relationship between the Jews and the Romans deteriorates. A war breaks out. The Romans ultimately do what to the temple? They destroy it. They destroy the temple. Absolutely destroy the temple. Do you know the date? It's an important date. Seventy. Okay, get the seven part. Seventy A.D. The temple is destroyed, and it has never been rebuilt. To this day, that temple has never been rebuilt. Seventy A.D. The temple is destroyed. Um, it's a very, very uh, terrible thing that takes place for the Jewish people. Uh, it becomes. Um, uh, um, a huge turning point for the for the people. So we'll pick up with the history there and get into the books, their writings, and um, the different groups and what they what differentiates them next week. Okay, um, but the temple is central. The law is central. The temple is not central so much today, <clears throat> but for most of their history it had been. Um, but the law is central. The law is central, beginning with Moses, trekking all the way through, and all the way to the first uh, to the first century, and all along the way, the law that God originally had given has been interpreted and reinterpreted and expanded and applied in gazillions of different ways. They're going to eventually put all the, all of that tradition together in some other holy writings that we'll talk about next week, the Mishnah and the Talmud. Okay. Um, so let's let's pause and pray. Father, we're thankful for just our little bit of trek through history today. Uh, we, we are thankful for the Jewish people. We are thankful 
uh, for their history. Uh, we're thankful for the Old Testament that tells us of their history because it's, it's through your, your uh, relationship with Israel that you have revealed yourself to us. It's through the way you interacted with them that we see your character and we see and understand who you are and what it is that you desire of men. And, uh, Father, we pray that, uh, as, that you would help us even uh, as we think about this again next week uh, to get a sense for what um, Jewish people in our day believe, what they, uh, what they understand and what they look for. And uh, give us uh, some, uh, Lord, some, some, some ideas on how we might communicate to them the identity of your son Jesus, God in flesh, that they might bow before him, come to know him as their Lord and Savior. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.